By the way, this presentation has a zero reverence policy for spoilers. You have been warned. At face value, Christianity and the horror genre seem incompatible. Some go as so far to claim that the horror genre is intrinsically evil and should be avoided. Christian writer Doug Phillips is one. Horror is an example of a genre which was conceived in rebellion. It is based on a fascination with ungodly fear. It should not be imitated, propagated, or encouraged. It cannot be redeemed because it is presuppositionally at war with God. And Phillips' stance often rings true with Christians, because when we think of horror, we tend to think of the overabundance of slasher films, where the only thing cheaper than the budget is the value placed on human life. We think of sadistic scenes of torture and violence made to titillate an audience seeking superficial spectacle. We think of stories that serve as a means to rescue evil by presenting it as something thrilling and to be celebrated. But these are failings in execution, not failings of the genre. Horror goes far beyond the shallow chaff of the summer slasher flick. In fact, it is arguably one of the most diverse genres, thanks to a very broad definition. Speculative fiction intended to frighten, scare, or startle the audience by inducing feelings of horror or dread. This gives horror the unique ability to take on any genre, latch itself on and possess it to make it its own with that dash of dread. Suspense, mystery, thriller, supernatural, spiritual warfare, gothic horror, psychological horror, cosmic horror, paranormal, sci-fi horror, and dark fantasy are a few of the subsets that fall under the far-reaching tentacles of the horror genre's monstrous aegis. And whatever the shape or subgenre, horror is inextricable from morality, because at its core, it is rooted in the conflict between good and evil making it a prime vehicle for exploring moral and faith-based themes. And the horror genre is an eminently biblical one. Horror and the biblical Christian worldview are far from incompatible. Rather, horror tropes and terrors are often biblically inspired. In fact, Stephen King, no slouch in the horror genre, claimed the Bible in many ways is the ultimate horror novel. Demonic possessions, promises of apocalypse, divine punishment, witches, necromancy, wars between spiritual entities. That's all in the Bible, and a number of stories in the good book are nothing short of nightmare material. The book of Ezekiel provides us a good example with the vision of the Valley of Dried Bones. As the title suggests, in a vision, the prophet Ezekiel is brought by God to a valley filled with dried bones and is commanded to speak to them. As he prophesizes, the bones reform flesh, reanimate, and rise up to make an army of revenants. Bones regrowing muscle and tissue as they rise from the grave is just one of many passages in the Bible with horrific elements. The ten plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus begin with the Nile River turning to blood and culminate with the death of firstborn sons. In Acts, after failing to honor God, Herod's fate is to be devoured by worms. In Genesis, Fire and sulfur rain down from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham looks back out on the plain, all he sees is smoke over the land rising like smoke from a kiln. The book of Revelation is far from a cheerful read in detailing the coming apocalypse. One passage describes the opening of a furnace-like abyss, unleashing smoke that darkens Aaron's sun. And from the smoke comes a swarm of monstrous, poisonous locusts to torment those who are unmarked by the seal of God. 
The torment they inflicted was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. During the time, these people will seek death, but will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will escape them. The appearance of the locusts was like that of horses ready for battle. On their heads, they wore what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, and they had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. Revelation chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. Scripture presents a world shaped by the moral vision. Horror tells a story where that moral vision has been deviated from. Beyond the Bible, early Christian art did not shy away from the macabre. What is to be feared, dreaded, and ultimately rejected has long been an element in the Christian vision, reflected in both literature and imagery. Inferno, the first part of Dante Alighieri's 14th century epic, The Divine Comedy, begins on an ominous note and descends further into a tale of terror as the poet journeys through hell, witnessing the internal punishment of damned souls. A particularly delicious bit of horror awaits in the seventh circle of hell with the forest of suicides, where the souls of those who took their own lives are turned into trees that bleed and scream when feasted upon by harpies. Dante does not paint a comforting picture for what awaits the immoral. The heretics imprisonment in flaming tombs, gluttons condemned to wallow in freezing filth beneath an icy rain while watched over by a monstrous worm, blasphemers damned to a desert of burning sand and rain. These descriptions are very much designed to horrify the reader and preach that moral failure lasts far longer than the sin committed. But the message of the circles of hell is not a celebration of the fear they inspire. It is a reminder of sacred duty, to recognize sin for what it is and reject it, and that there is consequence when we fail to do so. The 15th century politic painting, The Last Judgment, by Rogier van der Weyden, depicts the landscape at its base. In the art piece's center, the dead rise from their graves, to the right of the painting, you can see them moving towards heaven, paradise, good for them. To the left side, not so much. The condemned, they go towards the left and the fires of hell. Van der Weyden's capacity to reach his audience and put the fear of God in them has not been mitigated over the centuries. In Peter Hitchens' book, The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith, the author recounts his experience with this painting, and how even in the throes of unbelief, he was not unaffected. Still scoffing, I peered at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell, out of my usual faintly morbid interest in the alleged terrors of damnation. But this time I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open. These people did not appear remote or from the distant past. They were my own generation. They were me and the people I knew. A large catalog of misdeeds replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned. I had simply no idea that an adult could be frightened in broad day and after a good lunch by such things. As Mr. Hitchens put it, Van der Weyden was earning his fee nearly 500 years after his own death. Horror is far from anathema to Christian thought. It is critical to its message. Mature Christianity does not shy away from the darker realities of sin and evil or deny their existence. The Bible, in all its unsettling passages, the prevalence of hell and depiction of sin in Christian art makes that clear. And horror can only be horrifying if it recognizes a very basic, a very Christian, 
and a very biblical truth. Evil is real, and it is a perversion of what ought to be. Underlying that simple premise is the understanding that in order for evil to be real, an equally real good must pre-exist it. There can only be an unholy supernatural entity if there is a holy for it to have fallen from. Sacrilege demands the precondition of a sacred that has been violated. Evil can only come to be if there is the original good, a right and natural order for it to have been perverted from. The reader recognizes Dracula's depravity because it stands out stark against the backdrop of grace from which he has fallen away. Frankenstein's monster is monstrous because it was intentionally created in defiance of a higher natural law. Because the genre relies on inspiring dread and terror in the audience, horror has no suffering for moral relativism, lest it weakens itself by presenting evil as anything less than an overwhelming antagonistic force. The reality of morality, the battle between good and evil, the monster of sin that is but ought not be is what makes horror terrifying. Horror and morality are intimately linked which means horror works best when it trespasses into our most sacred centers and shakes the foundations of the moral pillars in our lives. And one such pillar is the family. There is something uniquely disturbing in seeing the domicile threatened, for siege to be laid to the place we are taught values, morals, and inculcate faith. Horror illuminates both the sanctity and the fragility of the family, and that the home is constantly under threat from the brokenness of the world without and the brokenness of the people within. Which is why, as much as haunted houses, religious rites, family is a critical element in the genre and has been since its earliest days. In Shelley's Frankenstein, the relationship between Frankenstein and his monster is one of a parent abandoning his child. And the monster's depraved behavior is a consequence of Frankenstein's failure to face the responsibility for what he created through unchecked pride. The monster himself laments on the agony of the absence of family, recognizing the void that has developed in its place, which has contributed to his diabolical nature. But where were my friends and relations? No one had watched my infant days. No mother had blessed me with smiles and caresses. Or if they had, all my life was now a blot, a blind vacancy in which I distinguished nothing. The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole tells the story of Manfred, the Prince of Otranto, and his struggle to secure his descendants' inheritance in face of a family curse. It is widely regarded to be the first Gothic novel and establishes a familial theme that has become a staple of the Gothic subgenre, the sins of the father, where the misdeeds of past generations will haunt and harm the future. Featured in the fall of House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, The Doom of the Griffiths by Elizabeth Gaskell, not only is this horror trope communicative of a moral message, to live a virtuous life lest the consequences resonate to your children, but is biblically based, derived from a passage in Numbers. Yahweh, slow to anger and rich in faithful love, forgiving faults and transgression, and yet letting nothing go unchecked, punishing the parents' guilt in the children to the third and fourth generation. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. Whether it be sin-born family curses coming to fruition, parents plagued by their monstrous creations, or simply a family struggling against external evil or internal iniquity, family and the responsibility for moral virtue often take center stage in horror. 
Because in combating the evil, success and survival comes down to the family's ability to exemplify virtue. And certain roles tend to line up with certain virtues. Cardinal virtues. Prudence is often exemplified by the mother, fortitude the father, temperance the children, and justice applies to the family as a whole. Prudence is the ability to discipline and govern oneself through reason. A virtue of the intellect, it is correct knowledge of what ought to be done and what need be avoided. When there's something strange in the neighborhood, the question is not who you're going to call. It is who is first going to recognize something is strange. Chances are it's going to be the mother who is the first to suspect a greater horror has moved in to threaten the family and is first to say what ought be done about it. In The Taking by Dean Koontz, a small community fights for survival as the world suffers siege from an enemy of apocalyptic threat. While initially the characters believe the events to be caused by extraterrestrial invaders, it is revealed they are the events of a supernatural apocalypse. The monsters are demons, and only the righteous survive the reaping of souls. Molly Sloan, the protagonist, not only survives the eldritch abomination springing up through town, but overcomes this enemy through exercising prudence. From the start, she recognized malignancy behind the strange events, but never loses sight of moral responsibility as they fight to survive a world descending further into nightmare and the continued attempts of demonic forces to tempt her to despair, to surrender, and even engage in the depravity consuming the world. Her ability to discern the good, discipline her decisions through right reason, and know what ought and not ought be done saves the lives of the town's children, as well her own soul when she resists temptations to hopelessness to sacrifice the good for self-preservation. Fortitude is firmness of spirit, the steadiness of the will to achieve the good in the face of adversity. It is both the suppression of fear and the restraining of recklessness. The father is often the one who takes the most active stand against the evil plaguing the family. It is not a reckless charge of attack against the unknown, but a measured defense requiring unflinching steadiness in his facing down denizens of their new, oh my, it didn't say haunting the real estate listing house, the eldritch abominations that won't stay out of the backyard, or a grim world collapse after a post-apocalyptic event. Cormac McCarthy's The Road follows the father and son through one of these post-apocalyptic settings. An unknown event has reduced the world to a barren ashscape, and father and son, known as the man and the boy, struggle to survive the hellish setting, contending against not just the hostility of the environment, but marauding bands of cannibals. While the man defends the boy from the external threat of other survivors, he also spiritually defends the boy, continually reminding him to act with firmness of spirit and to carry the fire. The father suppresses his own fears in battling the bleak reality of their situation and exercises restraint from recklessness by refusing to descend to the depravity of preying upon other people for survival. Through fortitude, he protects his son physically and spiritually, setting the example that even in their harsh circumstance, moral character must endure. Temperance is the moderating of desire, the mastering of personal appetites, and it is the virtue of the children or rather it is the virtue they must grow into. Children live in the here and now, and part of coming of age is moving beyond the self and its immediate desires and spiritually maturing to govern behavior beyond instant gratification. In the novella Coraline by Neil Gaiman, the titular protagonist Coraline begins the story with the normal self-centered worldview of a child. She's frustrated with her parents' shortcomings 
that she does not receive the level and quality of attention she desires and ignores the warnings of her adult neighbors against dangers to not go through a mysterious locked door in her new home. So when, of course, she does go through the door, she finds a mirror image of her home on the other side, complete with another mother and other father, who are more than eager to dote and provide for her every want and need, fulfilling her childish desire of what parents should do for her. The ideal fantasy does not last long. The sinister nature of the other mother is revealed, and Coraline's actions put her real parents in danger. Through the ordeal of defeating the other mother, Coraline comes to understand her error and wants dictating her actions, and that while her parents are responsible for her, she also has responsibilities and duties towards her parents that supersede her wants. So justice. This one's pretty simple. Justice is the determination to give everyone their rightful due. It basically comes down to if the family lives up to their responsibilities and virtues demanded of their role, they win. If they don't, they lose. To see this play out, we're going to compare two recent horror movies, A Quiet Place and The Witch. Despite A Quiet Place being set in present time and The Witch taking place around 1630, the films have some pretty strong parallels. Both have complete family units, or at least begin that way, mom, dad, and a few kids. Both films begin with said family isolated. In a quiet place, the monsters who hunt with hearing have reduced human civilization to pockets of survivors who must live in near absolute silence to survive. In The Witch, after a doctrinal disagreement, the father elects to be banished from the settlement rather than submit to theological interpretations that contradict his. Both films feature the families being threatened by outside supernatural forces. A quiet place has the previously mentioned monsters. And the witch, as one might guess from the title, has a witch preying upon them, all the while they are also being seduced, as revealed at the end of the film, by the devil in the form of the family's black goat. I warned you, spoilers would receive no corner. A Quiet Place is an example of the family rising up to virtue in the face of horror, which allows them to discover a way to defeat the monsters. In The Witch, the family fails to live up to virtue, resulting in its utter destruction, with everyone dying save the eldest daughter who sells her soul to Satan and becomes a witch. It's a bit of a bummer. So, let's break it down. Prudence and the mother. In a quiet place, the family's dilemma of being hunted by superhearing monsters is made a tad more complicated by the fact the mother is nine months pregnant. Having the baby is far from the pragmatic decision, but it is a prudent one. Even in the face of terror, the sanctity of life, and a higher good is recognized, with painstaking care taken to preserve it. Fortitude is the virtue of recognizing what may need be sacrificed. Prudence is the knowing of what cannot be sacrificed. In The Witch, the mother is the first to say they are being plagued by witchcraft. While the father insists the loss of their infant son was a result of a wild animal, the mother maintains something far more sinister is at play. While she recognizes the reality of evil, she fails in the knowing of how to face it. She accuses her eldest daughter of being the source of their ills, while failing to recognize her youngest children's disturbing behavior, centering on their goat, Black Fillet, as we previously mentioned, is the devil. She is unable to see through the charade of a vision of her deceased children, and it is heavily implied. Her unwillingness to recognize the evil manipulating her results in her signing away her soul and the promise she will be reunited with her lost loved ones. She is eventually driven to turn completely against her eldest daughter and attempts to kill her, which results in her own death. Fortitude. In a quiet place, the father takes the most active role in the physical protection of the family. 
setting up security and safeguards to keep them safe. He draws away the monsters, hunting his wife as she undergoes labor, and rescues her and his newborn child. When his older children become trapped by one of the monsters, he sacrifices himself, spoiler, to give them the chance to escape. Throughout the movie, the father faces down evil with unflinching determination. The father and the witch makes a habit of falling short of fortitude. He lacks the courage needed to confess the truth of his selling his wife's cup for needed money, allowing his daughter to take the blame for losing it and sows further division in a fracturing family. He meets the death of his infant son with fatalistic surrender, allowing the witch preying upon them to move closer against the family. He lacks the courage needed to swallow his pride, admit fault, which would allow his family to return to the safety of the community. And at the climax, spoiler, when he is confronted by the devil himself in the form of the goat goring him, the father drops the axe he's carrying and gives up, allowing himself to be killed. Now, we have an interesting parallel here. In both A Quiet Place and The Witch, in their final moments, both fathers are carrying axes and both drop them. But the father's death in a quiet place is a sacrifice made in fortitude as a stand against evil. The father in The Witch is an act of cowardice and a surrender to evil. Their physical actions are highly similar, but their intentions could not be further apart. Temperance in a quiet place. The movie begins with the death of the family's youngest child after the eldest daughter gives him a sound-making toy. Her gesture was one of good intention, but gave into the childish desire over of reason, gave into, the child's, gave into childish desire over reason, moderating wants, much as the youngest boy's desire for the toy was untempered despite his parents' warning. The family's surviving son is reluctant to step up to greater responsibility, the immediate desire for safety outweighing the long-term need to take on a more mature role in the family. Both of the children, when confronted with a climactic decision that requires them to either rise above their immediate wants or succumb to them, do exhibit temperance. Not so much in The Witch. The eldest son, Caleb, is at the uncomfortable stage where adolescence is transitioning into adulthood with the beginnings of some hormonal impulses. He ultimately fails these new and untempered desires when the witch presents herself as an attractive young woman and his surrendering to the seduction ultimately leads to his death. The eldest daughter, Thomason, the central character of the story, goes even further with failing her temperance check. At the end of the movie, despite having seen her family killed and cursed by the devil and his minion witch, she accepts the devil's offer to sign her soul away, tempted by the prospect of material and sensory luxuries. And all this is summed up under the virtue of justice. The family in the quiet place survived the story. The family and the witch either end up dead or damned. Both The Quiet Place and The Witch show the pivotal role of family and the necessity of virtue in confronting evil. While one does this through victory, the other illustrates it with defeat. Through the lens of the family, we are reminded sin is not just a transgression. It is a shortcoming. We're not simply called to reject evil, but have a duty to the good as well. Horror is not anti-Christian, it is not anti-family, it is a genre steeped in the necessity for morality. Disturbing and unpleasant as the stories may be, in the end, horror is a reminder that while this is a fallen world and our nature's broken, we are called to something greater. While families in horror demonstrate the cardinal virtues, the genre as a whole appeals to the theological virtue of hope. 
because in the end, horror stories are one of hope and redemption. G.K. Chesterton wrote, it is true that there is a state of hope which belongs to bright prospects and the morning, but that is not the virtue of hope. The virtue of hope exists only in earthquake and eclipse. For practical reasons, it is at the hopeless moment that we require the hopeful man. Exactly at the instant where hope ceases to be reasonable, it begins to be useful. The horror story is not a means of celebration for the morbid, but a reminder that disturbed and distorted as our lives are, that even in the face of suffering, evil, and sin, there is a greater good that stands against it. When we are called to, and it is in the dark, we most clearly see redemption's light. I told you, short guys. <laughs> All right. If there are no questions, I can just groove out. Oh, there's a question. Uh, so I, 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 I really enjoyed the presentation. But. No, I didn't. The question I was looking back when I have these conversations with mm-hmm. Christians, we don't appreciate it. Yeah. Say, it was like, well, how do you know what the line is between morbid fascination All right. and, and sort of moral edification? And, and, I, and I, think the, I think there are, mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting conversation, but I'm curious to see how, how, do you, how do you approach that? All right, there's a really simple litmus test. The girl and the monster. Who are you rooting for? If you're rooting for the girl to get away from the monster, good. If you're rooting for the monster to get the girl, no. That's it. It's that simple. All right. Um, we can throw down and be like Godzilla or Mothman, you know, whatever. Yeah. in that case that Jurassic Park, the monsters aren't evil. They're dinosaurs. They're animals. They're doing what is their nature. The moral question isn't monsters versus humans. It's what do humans have the right to do in terms of their intelligence. You're not rooting for John Hammond to get his park opened halfway through the movie. You're rooting for everybody to get the heck off the island. And so if John Hammond had said, by the way, guys, two months later, we're going to have a roller coaster that goes through this, I'd be like, no, it's a terrible movie. But you know, when it's, they're leaving on the helicopter, he's contemplating the mosquito and the amber preservative, you're going, all right, some things are best left untampered with. And that's the moral of the story. I had, yeah, yeah. I had this conversation with my child of nine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. Whereas when you watch Labyrinth and the girl wishes her brother away, she, it's the same thing, but then she has to go 
but she has right. So. Right, and I would say the uh, abandonment of virtue takes away the horror aspect of the genre. So like H.P. Lovecraft in particular, his shorter, more down-to-earth stories like Reanimator or the statement of, what is it, Raymond Carter? Well, those are interesting because a lot more is left up to the unknown and you get the understanding that oh, somebody trespassed and that they paid the consequence for it with justice. Goosebumps much like H.P. Lovecraft's larger pantheon tales, like the Call of Cthulhu, they become pretty boring and tired pretty fast, because it's like, yep, something bad happened. What are you going to do about it? Oh, well. And so since there's no responsibility, there isn't that tension that's created by saying, no, we have to do something against this. It's just sort of that fatalistic, well, a witch ate my baby. I guess that's it. So that's kind of the main difference, is that in Labyrinth, there is the moral responsibility, and Goosebumps is just, ugh, shock factor. Well, that was a waste of my time. Uh, I think she was first. Yeah. Right. So that's one thing. And then the other is that Lionel um, O'Connor actually is an interesting exception in many ways to the um, discussion of people turning back to virtue or hope in the end because a lot of her stories are about um, someone having that moment where they can choose, where they have that moment of hope and they can choose to save themselves mm -hmm. and they miss it. And right. Yeah, don't read Flannery O'Connor before you go to bed, guys. Yeah. Just don't, don't do it. But that is something interesting about Flannery O'Connor is that redemption isn't necessarily given to the characters, but it is revealed to the reader by not what the characters did, but what, I, but what they failed to do. And you see that play out instead. I think the gentleman with the glasses had his hand raised. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I it's all right. We can come back. I, I concur. There should be a petition. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. Thanks, guys. Gosh. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with a quieter place. Yeah because I have no intention of seeing it. I'm a big believer that stories should end, and the ending to A Quiet Place was gold, and so then extending it, it's kind of like, shh, for another hour or so. So we're all right. If not that, I do think by the trailer, which I did see, that they're going to go around trying to save people and whatnot, which makes sense, but I don't know. It doesn't really appeal. It loses a lot of that sort of family focus, I think. I was wondering if someone's going to bring that up. Yeah, and so she talked about how with 
Mm -hmm. There's the people who have that, that negative ending, and you said that that's a way that, that shows redemption. Mm -hmm. What about stories where everybody understands that bad things happen? Right. The people in the story understand that the bad guys win. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like the monster beats the people. Yeah. Is there, a, is there a way that that could be doing the same thing as Flannery O'Connor's work, or is, it, mm -hmm. is there, or is there something else that those stories do? Yeah, so Flannery O'Connor's stories are Grace Hurts, Tolkien's stories are Grace Heals. And so when Flannery O'Connor... Yeah, I know, right? Shoot. That's my one good line of 2020. I'm glad I got it out here. So... Flannery O'Connor does not hold back any punches when it comes to showing that the call to the Christian life is one of suffering, and even if you walk away from it, you're going to be haunted by it. And Tolkien is a lot more optimistic and hopeful in his approach. I think that's because he generally has a bigger world that's painted in Flannery O'Connor's short stories where he's able to explore that more fully. And so you are able to get you catastrophes just because the events that are happening are so much, you know, on a much higher, grander scale. But Flannery O'Connor is just these really little bitter moments that show human frailty and are saying, don't let that be you. So it's really just, I think it's a difference of scale that will show the impact of grace that it has in our lives. So there's an incomplete story arc, but the, like the, mm -hmm. the, the smaller story is told, but there's a larger story. Right. Yeah, that kind of goes back to my uh, complaints about a quieter place, is that some times in horror, you just got to let it end and leave it up to the reader. That's a really big part of the genre is that the audience is going to be so much more imaginative than anything you can either tell or show. Yeah. So leave the scene early and leave it up to them to fill in what happens next. All right. Good? All right. Good job, team. <laughs>